Kelly, I'm with you, as always. And, and just before we, we press record, you were pointing out the view outside your window. What, what are you looking at? Um, yeah, well, right now it's not raining, which is good because we just had some pretty serious atmospheric rivers come through. I don't know if you've heard the term of art that we use around here called the Pineapple Express. It's basically the warm, wet air coming from Hawaii, dumping everything out here. And there's We been... talked about that last week. <laughs> no, we talked about... Did we talk about it last week or yesterday when we were planning? No, no we talked about it last week because I remember I brought up uh, the movie <laughs> Pineapple Express. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, so um, the last atmospheric river passed through on Monday. Um, and so right now it's like really clear and just beautiful and like... Last night it went below freezing, so like all the rooftops are frosty, so it looks really wintry. So it's really nice. But I mean, there's been a lot of landslides and flooding in particularly like northwestern Washington and British Columbia. Luckily, where my parents, uh, my family, and I live, we haven't really experienced it as much like in King County. But I read something like the city of Vancouver is cut off from the rest of Canada because all of the roads got washed out. Oof. So it's it's just I don't know to what extent this is caused by climate change, but essentially with climate change, there will be warmer, wetter storms. And I mean, one of the things that, you know, my friends are like upset about is that the rain washed away all the snow. So like in addition to the water that fell in the form of rain, there's the extra water that's the runoff from the snow that also, you know, is flooding the rivers. And this will only become more common as the temperature rises because warm air can hold more moisture and just cause more rain. And so it's, you know, weather extremes out here in the Pacific Northwest. I guess that's why you hear a lot of uh, skiers and snowboarders, like a lot of them are really big climate activists, uh, among, among other reasons, I'm sure. Uh, I mean, I don't think that many of them are big climate activists. I think there's some of them. Get your stuff together, folks. I mean, we could have talked about this with Austin, but he has gripes with uh, the way that the ski industry or the skiing community has gotten involved in climate. (laughs) I'm a skier. I'm involved in climate stuff vaguely. I'm not a good skier, but I do ski. Yeah, I can't wait to to get back out into for ski season, snowboarding season to start. I'm 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 trying to go like in early December. I'm really excited to keep. I'm, I'm been learning how to snowboard starting since last year, so I want to get back into that. Um, I already know how to ski decently well, but yeah, snowboarding's hard. I don't know how to break. If anyone knows how to, if any of our on listeners skis? know how to break, no, on a snowboarder, on a snowboard. Like, I, I could use some tips. So You just have to make a turn and just, like, slide on the edge, like, downhill, you know? Like, just dig in. Yeah. Cause the most friction possible. It's weird, man. <laughs> so this past week, um, I um, one of my roommates had a birthday party, and she turned 25. And we had a great <laughs> little birthday party where we rented a bouncy castle. And we put it up in the middle of a park and just became children again. We bought, like, a bunch of coloring books and um like a tarp and brought out speakers to like listen to you um it was a great time and 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 newsflash for everyone anyone who's curious jumping in a bouncy castle is a lot harder than it used to be like it used to i remember being able to jump in those bouncy castles for like an hour and just keep having fun and just keep jumping around and have and like and like like it was no problem but now like 
as an adult, like, our bodies, I think, like, have gotten heavier, but, like, we haven't gotten proportionally as strong as, as, as we've gotten heavier. <laughs> so my bot, your, your body's just, you get tired in, like, two minutes of jumping. And, like, everyone was just talking about how tired we were, like, <laughs> laying down in the bouncy castle, like, wow, we've really, uh, we've really let ourselves go, huh? <laughs> yeah, I, I would say the other thing that's, like, really hard to do as an adult is anything related to, like, doing the monkey bars. It's so hard. And when you're little, you know, you're used to it and your lower body is light. So there's just less hanging off your hands and you do it all the time. So your grip strength is stronger. Now it's so hard. I'm like, how did I do all these things on the bars? I was like flipping around, like, you know, doing like multiple at once, like two or three. And I'm like, I can barely hang on one. (laughs) Yeah. Not to mention, like if I let go, I'll just fall off. Not to mention when you fall down and like when you were a kid, you'd fall down and be fine. But now if you fall down, you're like, Oh, I'm actually, I'm actually hurt. (laughs) Well, I think it's cause kids, I mean, that might not have as much to do with age as much as like when you're a kid you kind of just like are limp when you fall so your whole body like absorbs the shock whereas like I think if you're at least at our age I mean you might be like more tense or like you know you like try to brace your knees but like then you're just like you feel the shock more or you're just closer to the ground when you're young but that doesn't relate to falling off the monkey bars yep um so speaking of bounty castles and growing up um, speaking of that hot air, this week we're going to be talking about inflating something else. This time, not a bounty castle, but yeah, the economy, prices, specifically energy prices. That's right. We're talking about inflation. Do, do, do. Yeah. So um, setting the stage for energy inflation, according to the Wall Street Journal, crude oil has risen 64% this year to a seven-year high. Natural gas prices have roughly doubled over the past six months to a seven-year high. Heating oil has risen 68% this year, and prices at the pump are nearly a dollar over the dollar up over the past 12 months to national average of just three dollars a gallon. Cold prices are also at records, and I would just say, if I could get gas for three dollars a gallon, that's like cheap. Here it's like at least four. Yeah, I, I forgot about that when I was like living in like Maryland and DC. Like I'd look at the price and I'd be like, "Oh my god, four dollars a gallon!" And then I got out here, it was like four fifty or five dollars, and I was like, "Oh, I forgot. <laughs> California is expensive." And I mean, there's parts of Washington where the gas is really cheap. So specifically for all you people, Clea Elum Safeway has the cheapest gas consistently. That's like somewhat close. So if we're like driving over the pass, then I'll definitely. So, so inflation in general, um, we hear a lot of talk about it, especially um, in our in our country from conservatives. Um, people talk about being inflation hawks. Um, so, first of all, what what really is inflation? Um, really, it's overall it's, it's an it's an increase in the price of goods and services in your economy, and therefore a decrease in your purchasing power or spending power. Um, in other words, the value of a dollar has de- has degraded. Um, and in this kind of concept, there is this idea of real versus nominal prices. So let's say you're getting, you know, let's say you get paid um, $50 an hour, um, let's just say. And if all, you know, if you go to the pump and you're normally spending, you know, 30 bucks to fill up your tank, but, you know, next week it costs you 35 bucks to fill up your tank, but you're still making $50 an hour, what's happened is that your nominal, your nominal earning rate has stayed the same but your real earning rate has gone down. And so, so real, is, real rates is nominal minus inflation. Um, 
inflation in general tends to uh, historically average of inflation has been, been about two to three percent um, historically. Um, though the Fed generally t- tends to target two percent, and um, they use these different metrics called either the PCE or the CPI. Um, Kelly, do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So basically, the CPI stands for the Consumer Price Index. That's typically what um, you know the average person assumes that we use for inflation. Basically, the way this is calculated is the uh, basically surveys are sent out to households, and they're like, oh, you know, like how much does this thing cost? How much does this thing cost? And so it's basically like you have this basket of goods, and it's like the average price of all these things in it's like, oh, you know, the price of computers went up, so the price of gas went up. And so as the prices of items go up, then the um, CPI will adjust accordingly. The PCE is, um, it stands for the Personal Consumption Expenditures Price Index. Um, And so that is basically, it uses data from the GDP report and from suppliers. So this is basically like just seeing how much money is like being spent out there in the economy. And so it can account for like changes in consumption when price goes up. So let's say, for instance, like, oh, the price of bread went up. So people buy rice instead because it's, you know, it didn't get inflated. And so it would take into account the shifts in consumption as, you know, specific prices rise. So that's why the PCE tends to be lower than the CPI. So when the Fed is targeting 2% inflation, that's based on the PCE. They have like various reasons that they do it. Um, And just for reference, so um, there's also this metric called the quote unquote core PCE or CPI, which which excludes food and energy prices. So um, I mean, right now, since food and energy prices are going up, then the core CPI and PCE will be lower. So for reference, um, in the year ending in May 2021, the CPI went up by 5%, core CPI went by th- went up by 3.8%, the PCE went up by 3.6%, and the core PCE went up by 3.1%. So if we're seeing like the Fed, you know, targets 2%, but the historical average is 3, the historical average, I'm assuming that's probably the CPI that's 3.24%, but the Fed is targeting the CPE. Right. And just to clarify one thing, the Fed also is is shorthand for the Federal Reserve, which is like the federal central bank of the United States, which was established after the Great Depression and and all this. So it's like the central bank that, that determines um, interest rates uh, for bonds and has a huge influence on monetary policy. Um, also, um, when we talk about inflation, there's so we have these metrics of of calculating the rising prices of goods and services, right? There's another thing which is a little bit more insidious and a little um, hard to harder to track, which is called shadow inflation. So, shadow inflation is like when you have the same price for a good or a service, but the good or service itself is of lesser value. So, an easy example is like when you buy a bag of chips, and you might have noticed recently people are complaining like, "Oh, my bag of chips is like fifty percent air and fifty percent chips." And you know, before it was like eighty percent chips and twenty percent air. That's real. Like, don't don't doubt yourself. Like, that is really happening out there. So you you'll see like people put less chips into bags now, or they'll have chocolate bars that are a little bit smaller, but they charge the same price for them. So it tricks consumers into thinking, oh, I'm still paying the same price for one unit of you know a Hershey's or one unit of you know Ruffles or whatever Ruffles uh, Doritos or whatever. Hey, Ruffles are good. Don't hate. Ruffles are good. Yeah, but I I don't know why Ruffles was my go-to chip. <laughs> it's definitely not my go-to chip. Let's say uh, a Trader Joe's brand of uh, you know jerk banana chips, which are amazing. Um, but same price, and you get less for it. 
Um, another another example you see this is in like the hotel industry, especially during the pandemic. A lot of hotels have started to decrease their services, though. So they'll like they'll have this they'll have this little card that says, "If you care about the environment, like let us know, and we won't wash your towels every day." And it makes it seem like they're doing it from an environmentally conscious perspective. They're really doing it to save costs. Um, or they'll say like, "Oh, let us know if you don't want us to turn down your bed every day that you're here. Maybe just like when you come in and when you leave." But hey, but then you get rewards, you get points. Right. But ultimately, it, 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 feels, it feels good, like you're doing it for some reason, but really it's, it's shadow inflation and people trying to cut costs. So what really, so we're talking about inflation, we're seeing it across the economy. What is causing this? And there are several factors here. It's, not, it's a very complicated question, um, but it's, and we won't be able to cover it all in this, in this episode, but we'll talk about some of the, some of the factors here. Yeah. So the first most basic one, Econ 101, is just supply and demand. So basically during the pandemic, many businesses cut back on their staffing, laid people off, um, and productivity because demand went down. And so basically, I mean, all the supply chain issues that we're seeing is just from, I mean, first of all, people not creating as many goods and the fact that our shipping ports are all backed up because our port infrastructure hasn't been updated in decades. And so now that we're back to normal volume of goods, I mean, the way that we've been shipping things is so just in time that there's not really much margin for error. And now our whole system is being constrained. At the same time, demand is up. So people have pent up demand from the lockdown because, you know, we were just sitting at home, not even shopping that much, maybe some online shopping, but not that much. And due to the stimulus checks, people have more money in the bank than usual. As well as just decreased spending throughout the pandemic, like people weren't spending money on going out to bars or restaurants as much, and yeah, they were buying more stuff, but overall, not really spending the money that they were saving up to, so kind of pent-up demand coupled with um, increased uh, spending, uh, saving capacity as well. Yeah, definitely. So supply down, demand up means prices up. Right. Econ 101. <laughs> yeah. And you could even um, you could look point to um, some of the some of the metrics we saw during the pandemic and, and going out of it like lumber, which was this whole meme um, like that was going on. I actually loved the lumber memes because I was like, yes, inflation memes. Like this is my this is my stuff. Um, so lumber prices were up a staggering two hundred eighty eight percent from April twenty twenty levels, which is ridiculous. And, and they're driven by the rapidly heating housing market, people, people essentially buying homes during the panini or pandemic, and do-it-yourselfers. So people at, at, who already had homes or houses and were doing you know backyard projects, which, Kelly, was that either one of those? Was that you? Actually, no. Although, um, so fun fact, I actually did buy like some live edge wood from this guy. And he was saying he was building a home, he was building like an extension of his home. And he actually acquired this. So he was, I was like, where did you find this like live edge wood? And he was like, oh, well, like, you know, I just listened. I heard a tree falling. I went over there. I was like, can I have this tree? So I think basically they're like, yeah, if you take it for free, we don't have to pay someone to get rid of it. So he's like, this is great. I can make my own lumber to build my house and save a bunch of money. And some of them also had, I mean, it was like, because it's from an actual tree, there's like live edge wood. So I got it to, you know, make a little shelf. And it wasn't, I don't think it was that expensive. I don't really know what the market price is for like live edge wood, but I was like, right. I got it from some guy who made it from like wood that otherwise would have actually gone away. So I was like, that's pretty cool. And he let me use the thing to like cut it myself. So I was like, 
uh. That's pretty cool. <laughs> and it was it was intense. Like he had like his whole garage was set up with this like drying system. Because like when you have the wood just like fresh from a tree, it's not really ready to be used in your like house building. So he had like a kiln going like in his garage. I was like, that's pretty cool. And he's like, yeah, I've saved like thousands of dollars by doing this myself instead of buying the lumber. And that was back in like May. And so the price has probably gone up even more since then. Just goes to show how, how expensive the commodity really got. It's like, I saw memes that were saying like people are stockpiling Bitcoin. People are stockpiling uh, like oil at some point. People are stockpiling toilet paper. People are stockpiling lumber. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> just holding on to it. Um, so, so yeah, so supply and demand is definitely one of the big issues here. Um, this is really a global supply and demand problem. Um, we also have in the United States, like kind of domestically, we have some monetary policy that we should be examining here. Um, so this, and again, this is, we're answering what is causing inflation across the economy. Um, so again, we mentioned the U.S. Federal Reserve or the Fed. Um, and they control a lot of the monetary policy in the United States. And, and fun fact, they're actually independent from um, the presidency and the administration. So a lot of times you might hear people say, like, oh, the president should say should make the Fed do this and that. The, the, the president can't. It has no, he, the president has no authority to, to tell the Fed to do this or that. They can pressure. They can pressure, of course, and they can ask them. And, and, and Trump definitely did that. I remember um, he was talking a lot with Jay, um, Jerome Powell. And asking him to do things, um, and people were speculating whether or not whether or not that had any impact. But technically, they have no authority um, over the Fed. So the, another meme that people might have heard about was Jay Powell goes. Brrr. So this is uh, essentially the, this this um, is emblad, em, enem, enem, emblematic. Em, emblematic is the hardest word for me to say. Emblematic of the fact that forty percent of all U.S. dollars were printed in twenty 2020 twenty and twenty twenty one. I'm going to take a second to pause here. I'm going to say it again. 40% of all U.S. dollars were printed in 2020 and 2021. So this is, it cannot be understated that there's a huge velocity of money entering our economy right now. Um, and this was due to the, you know, the corona, coronavirus bailouts um, that happened, which included stimulus payments and corporate bailouts. And just because we have a huge, uh, another, you can think about it as a supply and demand thing as well. There's a huge supply of additional dollars in, in the U.S. economy now and in the global economy, um, and that causes the, the value of a dollar to go down. Um, and that's, that's kind of just a simple one, um, economics 101 as well. Um, and there are, I think that it's worth pointing out that there are lots of, lots of potential risks with inflation. There are a lot of issues with inflation, um, but there are also um, benefits of due to the stimulus packages that, that came out and the, the corporate bailouts and the, and the stimulus payments that went to individuals. So first of all, like inflation, the bad things with inflation is that if it, if it can get run away, like it did in um, world, post-World War I Germany, right, in the 70s or in several South American countries, you can really destroy livelihoods of entire communities. People who have millions of dollars are equal to the people who have hundreds of thousands of dollars or equal to people who have $50 in the bank. It's like, it pretty much means nothing. So that's called hyperinflation. Um, and, 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 and to be honest, it's probably not going to happen in the United States. So we, we probably will not see runaway, you know, 15,000% inflation. Um, what we're seeing right now is about 6% inflation, which is the highest it's been in, in a generation at least. 
Um, but the, the bad thing about inflation is that it, inf- it is, it's a justice issue. It affects the poor communities and middle class communities more than anyone else because these are the people who don't have assets for the most part. Um, so if you, have, if you have money in the bank and you're in, in the bank, it, you get, you're earning like what, 0.1% interest year over year um, and inflation is 6%, you are losing real money. Yeah. And that's something that, that people need to realize. Like if you're just leaving money in the bank and inflation is always happening – you are losing real money. Yeah, and real money, as we mentioned earlier, is like different than nominal money. So you're losing like purchasing power. Um, one thing I will note though is that actually, if you have a lot of debt, inflation's good for you because then <laughs> you're losing real debt. <laughs> so that's great. So you know, like actually, there's so many people that are like struggling under the weight of student debt. It's like you know, if like inflation goes up, the size of your debt will go down. But then if you're making, at least if your wages are keeping up with inflation, then you're in a, in a slightly less bad place. So that's just one thing that I would like to note. Um, and also, um, in the seventies, there is this idea. I mean, this is, you know, an idea that exists in general called the wage price spiral. So basically when people start expecting that, um, prices will go up, then they start demanding higher wages and then prices will go up as a result. And so it's like, if it just gets too out of control, then it results in this price. It's called like an inflation spiral. Um, one other thing that I would note though, is that like, is that a reason not to give people raises? Like personally, I don't think so. I think because productivity has risen so much in the last 40 years without a commensurate increase in the minimum wage, as well as the fact that like the workers' share of you know profits or revenues from the company has declined significantly over time, I think we're due for some kind of correction to revert to the levels that um, we had seen back in the day. Totally. Yeah, like some of the, again, like the economics 101 arguments against raising the minimum wage is that if you raise the minimum wage, um, essentially business owners are, are forced to make decisions based off of, uh, we have the same, assume they have the same amount of revenue. Um, they have to either lay off additional workers, so create more unemployment or, um, or raise their prices in order to keep their margins, right? So if they're, if they're paying their workers more money, they have to either cut the number of workers so they can keep their costs the same, or they have to increase the prices of their goods or services so they can keep, so they can raise their revenue and keep their margins the same, um, and that's been the argument against raising the minimum wage for, for decades now. But the issue is that inflation is always happening. Even if, if you're sitting around, usually you got, you got around 2 to 3% year-over-year inflation on an average year. And this year we're seeing 6%. But wait, but the minimum wage has not changed in how many years? Like 10 years or something? Um, uh, like 30? Yeah. So, so if, we, if we're not seeing – inflation is always happening. So the real minimum wage is a lot lower than $15 an hour, which is the nominal um, well, I mean, the nominal minimum wage is not fifteen dollars at the federal level. It's seven twenty-five. Oh, okay. I think I'm probably thinking of California's. Yeah, it's definitely California. Okay. Um, and and last thing to to mention here before we hop to our commercial break is that the Fed says that the inflation right now is transitory, and it, it transitory essentially means it's it's here for a little bit of time. And it may ramp off late in late 2020 once supply chain issues are smoothed out and we reach maximum employment. Um, that being said, we, I think we all need to admit to some extent that we don't know if it's here to stay or go. Um, and I would keep an eye on it for your own sake, for your own personal finances. You know, assume the worst and, and make sure that you're getting a, a raise. Um, 
if you didn't get a 6% raise this year, you are degrading your purchasing power. This podcast is brought to you by Bright Power, the premier provider of energy and water management services for real estate owners, investors, and operators. We enhance building performance, simplify building operations, and contribute to a healthier environment inside and out. To learn more, please visit brightpower.com. Also, do you want to have a hedge against energy inflation? Talk to Bright Power. We can help you um, with energy efficiency and uh, switching to solar power, which can provide a hedge against volatile energy and electricity prices, which are going to go up. So, And especially while interest rates are low right now, which we'll talk about in the second half of the episode. So diving in, we just gave a primer on Inflation 101, and now we're going to um, talk a bit more about inflation for energy specifically. So, Steve, how much energy inflation is happening? Yeah, so reports are telling us that consumer energy prices are up by 25%, which is, again, a seven-year high um, that the, that we've seen. Um, and interestingly, um, you know, you mentioned that there was like a core CPI and a core PCE, um, and and those exclude food and energy price indexes. Um and that's, I think that was interesting. I think I'd like to do more research on this, but um, a lot of economists actually say that energy prices or that high energy prices are one of the drivers that we're seeing of the economy-wide inflation. And, and that kind of makes sense if, we, if you walk through it, right? Like all of society is powered by energy, some, some kind of energy, electricity or fossil fuel or what have you. Um, so if energy prices are the things that are, that are increasing in prices, it makes sense that everything else would also increase in prices because everything uses energy. Um, so what, what was really causing inflation in the energy sector? Um, we, we mentioned already supply and demand. Um, so let's, let's kind of zoom into supply and demand in the energy sector. Kelly, you want to take us, take us here? Yeah. So there's definitely a short supply of oil during the pandemic. So, um, originally back in 2020, when the prices went negative, it was basically like they'd pump this oil and didn't have anywhere to put it. So that's why they're like, we will pay you to take this oil. And, you know, it's like, oh, like maybe it's a good opportunity to invest. No, because you literally have to take like thousands or millions of barrels of crude oil and put them somewhere because all the sh- And, you know, I don't know about you, but I don't have somewhere to store that. So that was a good time to be a operator of a, some kind of ship that could store like an oil tanker. That, that was a good time for them. Um, and then in the meantime, <clears throat> now that people are back, you know, traveling, commuting to work, driving their kids around, um, supply chains are, you know, totally back. Um, the demand for oil is back up, but the supply hasn't risen commensurately. And so you saw this last week, Biden at COP26 was like begging OPEC to increase their oil production to tame the energy prices and is increasing offshore drilling, which, you know, he had called Trump out for, uh, you know, a few years ago. And that's all in an effort to try to increase the supply of oil so that prices stabilize. And I, I would just, I would um, add one thing that I don't think supply chains are worked out yet. They're, they're smoothing out, but they're still pretty, pretty effed. <laughs> yeah, I would have to agree with that. Um, yeah, and so now as prices are going up, you know, uh, 
countries or companies that produce oil are ramping up production slowly. I think historically you would have seen like, you know, they just like turn on the taps, like, oh, the prices are high. Like, let's get as much as we can now. But I think they realize like, oh, actually, you know, when the prices are higher, we can have higher margins. And so investors in these companies are kind of pressuring oil companies not to ramp up production too much to maintain their margins. Um, and then now, so the World Bank, um, which is like the biggest multinational development bank, is uh, saying actually because of our dependence on volatile fossil fuel prices, um, that is, you know, can lead to a lot of instability in the economy. So the World Bank is encouraging countries to adopt renewable energy to avoid dependence on fossil fuels and their price volatility. Yeah, not to mention like all the geopol- all the geopolitical conflict and wars that are fought over oil. oil. Oil essentially is energy, and energy drives economies and drives societies. And if we can get off, if we can decouple energy from fossil fuels and do clean energy, like we will solve so many global conflicts as well. So it's like it's not just a economics or price thing. It's also like how many more wars do you want to fight? How many more lives do you want to throw away? Yeah, well, <clears throat> I mean, there will likely be a lot more conflicts in the world driven by climate-related displacements and similar disasters. So we don't need... Totally. You know, we got to replace oil as a source of conflict with climate change. <laughs> Get off of it. Stop it. Stop. Stop. So, um, stop it. <laughs> so a little bit more on this negative oil price that we talked about, which I think bears, bears a little bit more fleshing out because it really was a historical moment that... I remember it so clearly. Like I think I, I love that 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 it went negative because it's just like the weirdest economic like trend. Like I will pay you to take my good. <laughs> like that's that's crazy. Um, so yeah. So in twenty twenty, as 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 Kelly mentioned, um, the, the the worldwide demand for oil fell like drastically as everything shut down. Um, and really, what happened was that an oil price war began between Russia and Saudi Arabia um, in March when the two, two nations failed to reach a consensus on oil production levels. So, so Russia and Saudi Arabia are part of this cartel called the OPEC, uh, oil producing... Keep talking, I'll check it. It's Organization of Petroleum Exporting Countries. Okay, there it is. So OPEC is really, it's like an international cartel <laughs> of, of countries that they... Um, and these are always dictatorships and authoritarian regimes. So they, so like the, the president decides what is going to be um, exported. So so Putin tells us how it says how much is going to be exported from Russia, or the Saudi Arabian prince tells us how much he's going to be exporting. Um, so they failed to reach an agreement, and that led to an oil price war, where both of them were just like, "We're going to undercut you. We're going to undercut you. We're going to undercut you," over and over and over again. Meanwhile, while this is happening. In April, um, an oversupply of oil led, um, led to an unprecedented collapse in oil prices and then paired with the pandemic at the same time, which was like a perfect storm, so, such that um, it forced the contract, um, the, the contract for futures prices in West Texas Intermediate, which is a company, um, it, it forced those prices to plummet from $18 a barrel to around negative $37 a barrel. Um, and then by the summer of 2020, so that, that was like, the historical moment right there. We crossed the, the zero axis and went to negative. Um, by the summer of 2020, oil prices finally began to rebound as nations started to emerge from lockdown and OPEC simultaneously agreed to significant cuts in crude oil production. Um, and by the year's end of 2020, optimism over the possible rollout of multiple COVID-19 vaccines um, buoyed the market. 
Um, so this part, this is when people started thinking, oh, maybe you know, demand will return to normal levels and we'll be able to produce um, oil at the same rate and things will, quote unquote, get back to normal. So in November, Brent um, crude oil spot prices increased to an average of $43 a barrel. And now we're seeing this uptick continue. So things are, um, prices are kind of rebounding and in fact overshooting at this point to correct for the losses that they saw. Um, and that's kind of where we are now. So, so we, we've um, been on that uptick and the momentum has carried us over um, and now we're above where we were ever. So, um, is, and we've seen these kinds of oil, um, what would you say, oil crises in the past, right? Um, we, we talked a lot about how photovoltaics and it really began because of the 1970s and 1980s oil crisis in the United States and, and people trying to find energy independence. So, so what, what was that like and what were the economic implications of that? Yeah, I think one of the big questions that people are asking now is like, is there anything, you know, can we experience something like the oil price shocks of the 1970s today where you had to line up at the gas station and you're rationed to 10 gallons of gas per, you know, time that you fill up? Um <clears throat> And so, first of all, that was borne out by, like, a serious geopolitical crisis where, like, I think OPEC just, like, wasn't supplying as much oil to the U.S. Um, also, the percentage of our income that we're spending on energy is significantly less now. So now we're spending about 6 or 7% of our, so this is called the energy share of the consumer price index. It's now about 6 to 7% compared to about 13% in 1980. So that means that rising energy costs, essentially, like it's still, you know, affecting your wallet, but it's affecting less of your wallet than before. So that means that there's like more, I guess, like we could think of it as slack in the system to kind of take up these or like accommodate these changes. Um <clears throat> So while inflation rose by 5.4% over the past year, energy contributed only about 1.4% of that total. So it's about a quarter of the inflation that we're seeing is like due to energy itself. Right. And that number has been updated to like about 6.2%. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. This this was from, I think it was a number from like September or, um, yeah. Um, yeah. And so now, like since energy prices are going up, it's actually a really good time to be investing in clean energy technologies. They have their capital intensive, so there's, you know, a lot of upfront investment needed, but have relatively lower operating costs. So right now, since there's a lot of capital available at low interest rates, you can, you know, lock in your energy investment and then instead of having to pay for like electricity with the price of which goes up over time, you're just like paying back, you know, your loan payments, which are you know, I mean, they they stay flat over the course of your loan, but like in real terms, it's going down, especially as there's inflation. So, you know, when the interest rates are low, it's a good time to inv be investing in capital projects. And with inflation, it's a great time because, you know, your discount rate's going to be high too. Yeah. And this is also like a really interesting point is like the the economics of, let's, let's say climate change didn't matter at all. Let's say climate change was, was a hoax and it was all, you know, then we didn't need to transition off fossil fuels because of greenhouse gas emissions, but we'd have to eventually transition off fossil fuels because it's finite. There's a finite amount of, of oil in the ground. Um, and there's this thing called peak oil, which is the point at which oh maximum <laughs> is the point at which maximum demand for oil has been reached. And after that demand for oil only ever decreases because um, the price of it gets so expensive. Like once you start to get 
dwindling resources of oil left in, in, in the world, eventually it's going to be so expensive per, per barrel or per, to fill up your tank that you're going to need to transition anyways. So this is just another compelling argument for why we should transition off of fossil fuels to clean energy. Let's say forget about climate change, but eventually we're going to run out. So we might as well transition to something that's sustainable. And by sustainable, I, sustainable, I don't mean environmentally friendly, but I mean something that will be perennial, that we can continuously renew and use, you know, for society um, in the long term. Yeah, although what I will say is that with like unconventional oil resources, we will get screwed by climate change before we reach peak oil. And I don't, and by peak oil, it's not, is it like peak oil demand or peak oil consumption? Because demand could, you know, technically be going up, but then like because the supply is down, it just gets more expensive. I believe it is demand, but let me, let me fact check that. No, actually, yeah, it's not demand, it's peak oil extraction. Yeah. So it's the, the peak extraction and then the rate of, the rate is greater than at any time in the past or future. Yeah, and so going back off what we were talking about in terms of energy inflation, so because the share of energy as a price, uh, energy as a share of the consumer price index has gone down in the U.S., we will likely be less affected. I mean, you'll be like annoyed that you're spending, you know, at least for me, I'm like, oh, it's like $50 instead of $30. That's really annoying. Um, but it's not ultimately like, you know, affecting my quality of life. Whereas people in much poorer places in the world um, have seen that energy inflation, um, you know, just significantly affects people's quality of life and their ability to stay warm in the winter. And that's something that could actually become a big political issue, um, especially as, you know, we're trying to decrease the impact of fossil fuel burning and burn less fossil fuels, particularly like, you know, in the winter, if people are like actually not able to procure enough natural gas or whatever fuel they're using for heating, that could lead to some serious issues. Um, And so there's one case in point um, about two years ago, not two, four years ago, China basically was like, okay, there's like, you know, so much smog in the Northeast part of the country. What we need to do is ban it's like stop coal, coal burning. But the problem was a lot of uh, poor households in more rural areas use it for home heating and also in schools. And so they're like, you can burn natural gas instead, but because they hadn't built out the natural gas infrastructure, the price of natural gas went up by 3x and there also literally just wasn't enough supply of natural gas. So there are various things happening like kids bringing their corn cobs to school to burn in the furnace to stay warm. And there's just like massive outcry and then they quickly backtracked and were like, okay, like... We have to, you know, uh, they were basically like, we have to make sure our priority is keeping people warm over the winter and then build out the infrastructure over time. And so I think in terms of policymaking, that's like a really important thing is like making sure that like there's an orderly transition plan in place to make the transition as seamless as possible. Yeah. Um, Okay. So moving on here. What can Biden or his administration do to combat energy inflation? As it turns out, not much. Um, And and this is not what you're going to hear, by the way, from Biden or his administration. You're going to hear that they're going to we're going to be working on solutions and we are working with our all team of experts to to solve this problem. Um, That's that's called signaling. (laughs) Um, So the reason why is that um, American oil companies um, are really the ones who can do something about this. American oil companies. Um, they can increase. They can they can produce more oil and therefore create an increase of supply and then drive prices down. Um, and 
oil oil companies, American oil companies, are not beholden to the president. They're beholden to shareholders, unlike in Russia or in Saudi Arabia, where where the dictator says what to do. Um, so international, so so American domestic oil companies are not really um, a, a lever that the president can can wield. International oil is controlled by OPEC, um, and Biden can ask them to release more oil, which he did, and the answer was no. <laughs> so. Um, and again, so Biden Biden can go harder on this. He can he can force them. He could he try to force them or use some kind of sanctions or um, you know deal making to twist their arms and make them produce more oil. Um, and this first of all, this would require congressional approval. But he would also risk retaliation. And it's not really a a, a war we want to get into right now. Um, so likely, what will what will be happening is that America will will release some oil from what's called the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. And this is like some amount of um, oil, uh, petroleum that they've held off and they've, they've left somewhere um, for emergencies. And they will release some into the market, um, which is like more of a short-term solution than anything. It will, it will cause a dip in prices that Biden will be able to point to and say, look, this is what we did. Um, but it's not really a long-term solution. It's, it's just a short-term influx um, injection. Um, and it's, it's pro- probably going to be d- due to political pressure for him to do something, do something, do something. He'll, he'll do it. And be able to point to it um, politically. Um, so overall, the answer will likely just be time. Um, the the U.S. Energy Information Agency (EIA) has predicted that um, oil prices will start to fall um, next year, and OPEC similarly has predicted that there will be an oil surplus in 2022, which is next year. So that's when we have that surplus again. Oversupply will drive prices down again, um, and it's it's really just a, a smoothing out of the supply chains here. We, we have we've had. Um, huge supply chain contractions and and um, you know mess messes that we're cleaning up currently. And anyone who's who's bought anything off of Amazon or any kind of online shopping knows that their their packages are not getting here on time. So that's that's what you're seeing right there. Um, so this is just another another compelling argument. Isn't it time we get off of our dependence on fossil fuels? and stop putting up with all this volatility. I would have to agree with that. And I would say, you know, you know Biden can increase supply by opening permits for offshore drilling. Right. I think that was a, that was a great point, though, Kelly, about like the fact that, that at, at the Climate Sanction Summit, he's like, oh, we're going to stop drilling. We're going to stop oil production. And then, like, meanwhile, in the same sentence, he's turning around and saying, oh, like, can you guys increase your oil production? It's definitely a catch-22 because he has climate commitments to, to, like, realize. But he also is like, I have short-term, like... My people are hurting right now because of high energy prices. So it's definitely, definitely a tight, tight, uh, tight rope to walk. Well, speaking of things that will reduce our dependence on fossil fuels, now it's time for the Green News Feel. Steve, what's yours? <laughs> so at the beginning of the show, we talked about inflation and, and hot air. Um, why don't we talk about some natural gas now? Um, so November 15th at, uh, as a, at about 7.40 p.m. Central Time, um, the Laporte Net Power Demonstration Facility achieved synchronization with the grid for the first time. So what is that? Um, essentially, the, so the company here is called Net Power, and the demonstration facility is called Laporte. Um, so this is a major technological breakthrough. Um, so what it, does the plant do, and yes. where is it? So it's in Texas, and what the plant does is it burns natural gas and uses supercritical CO2 to generate electricity while inherently capturing CO2. So this is essentially clean energy, a clean energy breakthrough, um, and it's actually a fundamentally novel thermodynamic cycle, enabling the capture of 100% of CO2 from combustion at high net efficiency. Um, so 
what this is is like um, the quote that I read from the article is this is a Wright Brothers first flight kind of breakthrough for energy. It's really, really, really exciting. So it's zero emission, low cost electricity delivered to the grid from natural gas fuel technology. Um, it's fundamentally different from natural gas with carbon capture. It's like the actual thermodynamic cycle itself captures um, all CO2. Um, so the technology, uh, again, again, the company is called Net Power. Net Power's technology combusts natural gas with oxygen instead of air and uses supercritical carbon dioxide as a working fluid to drive a turbine instead of steam. Um, so so net, net Power does not produce any nitrogen oxides, um, sulfur oxides, or particulate pollution, and the remaining CO2 is a pipeline quality to either be safely stored in underground geological formations or utilized for industrial processes. Um, and the, the, the process only um, produces electricity, liquid water, and pipeline-ready CO2. Um, I think one thing is to note here is um, it's definitely, let's let's keep the scrutiny high. I think um, there's a lot of independent analysis that needs to be done here. Um, but if this is the case, like it's definitely one new tool we can use in our arsenal to combat clean en- uh, climate change and, you know, have clean energy portfolios across, across the board. Um, at the end of the day, it's like I- I'm technology agnostic. Like, although I love solar, I love wind and batteries, like any kind of clean energy source that gets electrons on the grid in a clean way is a win. Um, and it's also worth mentioning that this is zero emissions at combustion. So there will still be upstream gas system emissions that come from like methane leaks. Um, but that can be addressed with smart regulations and a methane fee. So pretty exciting stuff. I definitely want to hear more about a net power and see how it commercializes, but pretty excited about this one. Yeah, definitely. And I would say, you know, given that the Biden administration just released these new methane rules, that hopefully that'll have a good effect on the methane system. Yeah. Yeah. Um, cool. So my green news spiel is uh, the BIF, the Bipartisan Infrastructure Framework, recently just got Biden's signature, which is good. So that's moving forward. And it includes $550 billion in new spending on infrastructure projects um, out of $1.2 trillion total. Um, and we covered this back in, I think, see, uh, an earlier episode where we talked about the infrastructure and reconciliation bills. So now we're just waiting to see what happens to the reconciliation bills. Hopefully the specter of inflation, you know, doesn't have too much of a damper on the effect that it has. But then also it's like, you know, if the value of money is going to go down, better spend more now while it's still worth something. Um, Also unrelated, but I found this really cool Twitter thread, um, which basically was like, um, reverse. So this guy, Derek Thompson, he's a staff writer at the Atlantic. He says, I love this exercise. Reverse time and imagine the familiar system that society is moving away from as a novel system that we're moving towards. For instance, if we're going from a status quo of remote to a new system where you go into offices, people would be outraged at the expectation that workers have to pay their own commuting costs. Another, credit agencies. Imagine if credit agencies didn't exist and say Facebook offered to track all of our spending habits in exchange for coming up with an inscrutable number that we'd have to share with banks whenever we make a big purchase. So that's just some food for thought. And someone else pointed out that we're actually going back to the pre-industrial norm where people um, just like everyone worked from home. They would like, you know, weave fabrics like in their house um, before the advent of like mechanical looms and like the factories where uh, fabric was woven. So it's pretty interesting. Um, and I think there's a lot of things we could think about. Another one on there was like, imagine what consumer reports would say if we went from an electric car 
to gasoline cars. They'd be like, oh, it smells bad. It like accelerates slowly. There's so many parts that could break. It's loud. <laughs> it's loud. <laughs> exactly. Which I guess some people like. <laughs> so just imagine, right? Like if we had our whole grid powered by like renewables and we're like, oh, we're going to pump this liquid out of the ground, burn it. You can't reuse it. It smells bad. And like all these things, like why would we ever do that? I One thing I was... One thing I'll say also on your on your first half of Green New Spiel is like the five hundred fifty billion dollars that's going to um cl- to clean energy. Um, I think it's it's not to clean energy; it's new spending. On- I think it is five hundred billion also though to clean energy. Really? That would be a different number. Yeah. Okay. Um. So that five hundred billion dollars that goes to clean energy, I think is it's worth saying that one, it's not enough. Like we don't, it's not in line with the science to solve climate change. But two, it's the largest amount of money that we've ever put into clean energy and to climate, ever. Yeah. So it's like, it's still a win, and I think it's worth celebrating the wins. Like, it's worth celebrating the wins, but simultaneously continuing to put the pressure. Like, the bar has never been lower, and the stakes have never been higher. Yeah, it's actually um, $150 billion for both, like, climate, you know, clean energy measures and climate resilience. So, not $500 billion. If we got $500 billion, that would be great. But the other... Th- but it is the most we've ever spent on clean energy, yeah, right? Yeah, at a federal level. But I think one other thing to keep in mind, you know, this is something that um, Republicans like to talk about a lot. It's like the power of public-private partnerships. It's like, to what extent does this federal spending unlock private sector spending? And if you can get a ratio of like one to three, that's pretty good. Um, and I don't remember where I heard this, but it was like, right now the ratio is like one to like 0.3. So we need to figure out how to be, you know, spending our federal dollars more effectively to unlock more private investment and investing in, you know, things that the market isn't quite yet ready to invest in, um, you know, providing some kind of like guarantee so that investors are willing to put in their money um, and stuff like that. So that's just that's also just something to think about. Um, but with that, we'll wrap up our Green News spiel and wrap up the show. Thanks, everyone, for listening. You can find us on Twitter, um, at GenRenewPod. Um, make sure to like and subscribe. Leave a review if you liked it. If you didn't like it, don't leave a rating and review so that our average doesn't go down. Um, and slide into the DMs at Climate underscore Steve on Instagram or at Kelly M. Jang. That's spelled J-I-A-N-G. But I know Steve's name is way easier to pronounce, which is why people slide into his DMs and not mine. <laughs> Um, but yeah, um, we have one more episode coming up next week, um, about COP26, the recent, uh, climate conference in Glasgow, Scotland. And then after that, we'll be off for the rest of the holidays for a much needed break. So thanks all for listening and we'll see you next week.